Hi, this is Kev Legs Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. I am thrilled and overjoyed to say I'm now joined on the phone by the legendary Paul Jones. Paul, are you well? I'm extremely well, thank you, Kev. Right. Uh, you've had such a long career in various things. Where do we start? But I believe you started out as P.P. Jones with somebody named Elmo Lewis. <laughs> Elmo Lewis, yes, uh, which but didn't last very long. But then P.P. Jones didn't last very long either. But uh, that was Brian Jones, of course. Yeah, and he and Keith Richards asked you to join their band, didn't they? Well, <laughs> I'd, I'd actually already asked him if he'd like to join my band because I, I had a semi-undergraduate band. It's partly, they used, used to call it town and gown. In other words, some people were students at, at the university and some were people who just lived in Oxford. And um, it, was a, it was quite a decent band. It's sort of mixed talents. And I lost my guitarist because he got married and his wife thought he ought to do something slightly more lucrative than hmm. play in a, an occasional band. <laughs> so I asked Brian if he'd like to join my band. And I've never forgotten his answer. He said, I don't care to be in any band unless I, I'm its leader. Right. Um, I said, well, I'm its leader. So, <laughs> <laughs> But we stayed friends. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, as he, yes, as you say, sometime later, he asked me if I would like to join his band. And I told him no as well, but uh, not because I wanted to be its leader, but um, for two reasons. One, I thought he was being unduly optimistic, thinking that he could actually make a living from playing the blues, because nobody else I knew was making a living from it. They were playing it as a hobby. Even if they were professional musicians, they were playing other kinds of music for money or for a living, you might say. Uh, and the other reason was actually I'd, I'd only just passed an audition to sing with a, a band, and it, w it was a dance band. But you might think that's a bit of a sort of dead end, but mm. actually it wasn't. It was, I learned a lot from being in that band. Uh, great musicians. Again, they were, they were doing that really for the money, for a living, and then they were playing what they would rather play, which in their case, most of them, was not blues, but jazz. But anyway, I learned a lot from being in that band, and I've never regretted turning Brian down, because, as I've frequently pointed out, if I had joined that band, that getting-ready-to-be-a-band band, it would never have become the Rolling Stones, not as we know it. It only became the Rolling Stones when Mick and Keith were in it. Yeah. A few years ago, I had the honour of chatting with Tom McGuinness, and he was saying when he was learning, you'd hear of somebody across town that had got a record, and you'd travel across town to hear that record and learn the chords. Even to see it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, what, was... was that the same kind of thing with you then? Oh, yeah, it was just it was pretty much the same. I mean, I, I kind of knew, I think I sort of knew Tom McGuinness roundabout then or maybe not i haven't quite met him then i had a piano player in my band called ben palmer who later became cream's roadie ben and i put a uh, an advertisement in the melody maker asking for musicians actually 
were we asking for musicians or were we asking if, if there was a band that needed us? <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you put in a, a thing saying, you know, musicians wanted for band forming. Yeah. Or other times you might say two excellent blues musicians looking for a band. And I think that was what Ben and I put in the Melody Maker. And Tom replied to it saying, well, I haven't got a band, but I'm a guitarist. And if you've got a pianist and a singer stroke harmonica player and I join you, we've nearly got a band. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that was probably about 1962. You were saying that bands of that era were playing the hits to earn the money and doing blues as a sort of sideline. So what were you playing then? Was it the hits, or were you heading towards the blues? Oh, in the the dance band, it was definitely the hits of the day. And just occasionally, we would sort of... Because they would play standards. They played a lot of standards, by which I mean sort of pop songs from a previous era, you know, theatre songs and songs from musicals and stuff like that but just occasionally I, I would be allowed to do something that actually wasn't a hit in the charts but that was rare so it was mainly that sort of thing oh gosh i can remember having to sing uh, bobby v songs and joe brown songs and uh, oh yeah you know all kinds of stuff like that were you listening to blues at that point or did that come later oh my goodness yes uh listening to blues all the time I didn't, you know, it, it was like, as Tom said, if somebody had a, a particular LP, you would cross town to hear it, or, or even just to look at it and read the sleeve notes on the back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I probably at that time had, I thought if I had 10 LPs, that's probably an exaggeration. Um, I had, I, actually, no, I probably did have 10 because I had a few jazz albums. I had some stuff with Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet and Jelly Roll Morton, stuff like that. But as far as blues was concerned, I had Muddy Waters, who I guess probably the first Muddy Waters album I had was the live one from the Newport Jazz Festival. I'm not sure what year that was, probably 60, 61, maybe 62. Was Uh, there... A particular track or artist that turned you on to the blues, or was it? Oh just... yeah, very, very definitely. I mean, I, I was I, to some extent I was already listening to the blues. I was listening to particularly the, the, the sort of acoustic and earlier forms of blues, uh, Sonny Terry and uh, Brownie McGee, and yeah, Big Bill Brunsey. Oh, and um, interestingly, Mose Allison. Right, uh, but. I used to go to a shop in Plymouth. My father was the captain of the dockyard in Plymouth. And uh, being there during vacations, I used to go to a shop called Pete Russell's Hot Record Store. (laughs) (laughs) I saw saw its advertisement in the local paper and I thought, that's the place for me. If that sells hot records and it's called a store, not a shop, um, that's the place for me, definitely. And I used to go in there and spend what little money I had. One day I was in there and Pete Russell said to me, you're a blues fanatic. What do you think of this? And he played me a T-Bone Walker album. It was actually a French album, although the, the original record came out on Atlantic in America. 
and it was called T-Bone Blues. And on T-Bone Blues, there was a song called Play On, Little Girl. Just keep on having fun. You keep on playing till your playing days are done. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, unusually, very unusually for T-Bone Walker, who I instantly recognized as a genius, he had a harmonica on a couple of tracks. And that harmonica player was Junior Wells. And that just that one track told me what I was going to do with the next four or five decades of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I went out and bought a diatonic harmonica. I think it was a blues harp, a Hona blues harp. Good. And uh, I started to try to play it. Well, not long after that, Brian Jones said to me, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't actually use the phrase, I suppose you know you're doing that all wrong, but that was what he was saying. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what key is that harmonica? And I said, it's in C. And he said, and what key are you playing it in? I said, C. And he said, well, that's where you're going wrong. You want to play the blues, you've got a C harmonica. Play it in G. And I went, okay. And it was like Brian had opened this locked door or gate into a magical garden. (laughs) It was a whole new world for me. Well, if anything was going to turn me into a harmonica player, the first thing that I remember hearing was Cyril Davis's Country Line Special. Oh, yes. Well, it's just such an upbeat tune. I just absolutely love that tune. I, I never get sick of playing it. And, you know, I, n- I, never per- I never learned to play Country Line Special. I'd seen Cyril Davis live a lot, and that, but that, of course, was before he ever made that record. Mm. And... Uh, I know that Cyril Davis, like me, was a big admirer of James Cotton. Right, yes. But I, I, could, I couldn't honestly ever say that Cyril was an influence on me because um, I was kind of, you know, off and running, as it were, before I even heard him. And by that time, of course, I was listening to Little Walter, Big Walter, Sonny Boy Williamson, and all those other people. Yeah. So I, I, I couldn't count Cyril as a, an influence of mine, although, you know, I loved what he did. Yeah. When you joined Manfred Man and you started getting hits and you'd go over to America, did you feel in some ways that it was almost like selling ice to the Eskimos when you were playing blues songs over there? <laughs> Not really, because, because blues was was very much niche music in America, just as it was in Great Britain. Yeah, okay, it was, it was the music of black America, but by the time... See, we, we, that first hit of ours was early 1964. By the time we actually got to go to America, which was very late in 1964, African Americans had turned away from the blues in quite big numbers. Um, because at that point, you were having, if not soul music, certainly proto-soul music. And that became the music of African-Americans for the next goodness knows how long, probably ever. Yes, it now mutated into sort of rap and house and goodness knows what, but they'd kind of given up on the blues. And the, the guys who were doing really well playing the blues were actually playing to mostly white university students and people like that. 
we well, didn't feel we were sort of taking coals to Newcastle or selling ice to Eskimos. <laughs> we thought we were uh, we we were just sort of looking for the remnants of the blues yeah. that, that were still there. Well, I, I was just thinking while you were saying that that if you look at the footage from Newport Festival or festivals of that era, it is quite middle class white Americans that are in the audience mostly. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I didn't realise until I was doing the research on this is that you co-composed the theme tune to Ready, Steady, Go. At, at that point, I was um, I was already uh, the main songwriter for Manfred Mann. And uh, in fact, we, we were only on Ready, Steady, Go at all um, because of a, a song of mine called Cocker Hoop, which was our second single. It's not something that I care to play too often nowadays. <laughs> um, it was a piece of juvenilia, but it was, um, I, I suppose I, would, I could truthfully say that the main influence on it was Bo Diddley. Right. So it, it, it pretty much had that dang, uh, dang, dang, thing about it. And uh, it was called Cocker Hoop, and it was all about, it was all about the Manfreds, actually. So... The people at Ready Steady Go liked it and had us on the program doing it. And that still didn't help it to get anywhere because it <laughs> didn't. But um, while we were there, they said, would you actually be interested in writing us a signature tune? So we said, yeah, we could, we'd very much be interested in that. So Manfred and Mike Hug, who were, after all, the founders, and I, as ipso facto the main songwriter, just set to work and and did it very quickly. A bit like uh, Noddy Holder with Merry Christmas, everybody. It's a little earning on the side there. It's, it, it's, it's um, five four three two one is probably my main earner. Yeah, yeah. In terms in terms of songwriting, even though I've only got a third of it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I've got I've got some other decent ones. But but yes, that that's probably my. We never did a Christmas song. I wish we had. But anyway, um, you're quite right. It's 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 uh, my equivalent to Noddy's. When you left Manfred Man, you went on to acting, and the 1967 film Privilege that's become a cult classic. Did you want to go into acting, or were you approached? Very much the latter. Um, my, my only acting up until that point was I, w I was King Duncan in the school Macbeth in my last year, <laughs> which I hated doing. The only good thing about King Duncan is that he gets killed in the first act. So I, that, I, so I didn't have to do too much. <laughs> I was never thought of myself as, as having an acting career at that stage. However, Peter Watkins... Who, whom I very much admired as a, a, a film director because I had seen, well, most recently I had seen television drama that he did on about the Battle of Culloden and thought how wonderful it was and how very interestingly it was filmed. And uh, all of a sudden, he, it turns out he's doing a film about some rock star being manipulated by the uh, powers that be. And... Uh, Yes, I had a phone call saying, did I want to be in this movie? Well, you went on to do much more acting over the years. Yeah. And would you do some more? 
I'm I'm not doing a, any acting at the moment, and I haven't done ooh, for a good few years now. I, I I started not doing it because I was so busy with having both the Manfreds and the blues band, and I had an agent in an inertia sort of way. I have still got the same agent, but um, at that time, uh, they used to send me, when I say at that time, I mean years after I'd been at the National and the Royal Shakespeare Company and all that, um, I would get uh, queries from theatrical companies putting on projects. They would be along the lines of, uh, would you be interested in doing this or that play or musical in two months' time. (laughs) And I would say, say, the only reason you want me is because I'm (laughs) (laughs) well-known. And because I'm well-known, I'm not free in two months' time. If you want me, you have to ask me if I'm free in two years' time. And so that just ground to a halt, really. Mm. I've never... That's not something I regret at all. While you were acting, you were still performing, and there was mm. a, an infamous tour of Australia and New Zealand in 1968. <laughs> Dare we touch on that? Yeah, we can, we can talk about that if you like. You got over with the Who and the Small Faces, and it didn't end happily. <laughs> um, no, it, it was it was kind of it was kind of weird. I'd never been, um, I've never really been one for rock culture, if you know what I mean. Mm. And in consequence of that, I I found a lot of what went on on that tour quite mystifying, really. (laughs) But I was quite friendly with Kenny Jones from The Faces and Roger Daltrey from The Who. And... I realized, in fact, I I said this to Roger some years later after we were sort of well back in the United Kingdom. I mean, really, quite a few years later. I said, um, Roger, I think you and I, and possibly Kenny Jones, were about the only sane people on that tour, weren't we? And he said, most definitely we were. (laughs) (laughs) But what was kind of funny about the... It wasn't really the end of the tour. It was about halfway through or maybe two-thirds of the way through the tour. We were, I think we were flying from Perth to um, Sydney. And uh, we'd been very late to bed the night before and very early up to get this plane. And so most of us were just knackered. I mean, just completely either asleep or just sort of staring out of the windows in dazed sort of way. Um I can remember very clearly that the most physical activity that was going on was, I think it was Kenny, had a, there was, there was a family in the row in front of him with a, with a little tiny baby. And this baby was sort of like looking over the parent's shoulder. Mm. And you know when you, you, you do with babies, they've got those little tiny, tiny hands. Kenny Jones held out his little finger and this baby clasped his little finger with the whole of its um, fist, if you like. Yeah. And, you know, you, you do that with babies. That's what, that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> and that was honestly the most activity that I could see. <laughs> However, not many minutes later, 
we were all accused of rioting. Mm. And I, I, it was, it, it, honestly, it was completely mystifying to us all. I worked out later what it was. We all had long hair and we were untidy. Yes. And yeah. um, I was actually the most riotous person in the whole party because they were serving coffee and tea coming down through the cabin and they came to the rows where we were and they stopped serving coffee and tea and then they resumed selling it behind in, in the first row behind our party. So I turned around and looked over my shoulder and I said, we'd like some coffee. And the air hostess said to me, you'll get coffee when I'm good and ready. And I said, no, you're serving those people coffee and you've, you've left us out. Bring us some coffee. Whereupon she strode up the center aisle and came back with the uh, second in command of the flight who said, right, which ones were swearing and threatening you? <laughs> <laughs> and um, the pilot made an unscheduled landing, probably in Melbourne or somewhere. And uh, and we all had to get off the plane. Oh, you rock and roll rebel. Which I know. <laughs> I know. And, 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 the, and the ridiculous thing is, I, I was then appointed spokesman for the group because, you know, I kind of speak nicely <laughs> <laughs> and so you know i explained to the police and uh, anybody else who wanted to listen what had happened and uh, nobody actually believed us they, they thought well you you know you're rock and roll people you must be you must be lying you must be uh, fighting and swearing and rioting and stuff and not one jot of anything we did could have been described as fighting, swearing, and rioting. Mm. So, so um, I never raised my voice or certainly didn't use a swear word or anything like that. So um, so it was a completely manufactured yeah. incident. It, well, uh, it really didn't deserve all the time I've just given it. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you enjoyed that little interview there and there will be more as we record more for the show and we are going to delve into the archives and pull some of the old ones out as well so plenty more to come and of course if you want to hear the whole show there is always listen again i'll see you next time take care